Hey there. Welcome to another edition of the Livewire House Party. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Hi. How are you? Anything uh, going on this week? Uh, look, here's the plan for this episode of the show. During a moment in our country when so many things still feel up in the air, we are going to hear from some of our nation's brightest minds about their vision for this place, including Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Jose Antonio Vargas on why he ignored the advice of 20 lawyers and publicly came out as an undocumented immigrant. Then Denez Smith will stop by to share their poem, My President. Then we're going to hear music from Angelica Garcia, who, speaking of presidents, showed up on one of Barack Obama's yearly playlists. Okay, listen, we got this. Let's all just take a breath and get started with the Live Wire House Party right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Lukey B., it is so nice to see you. Hello. Hi there, my friend. How are you doing this week? I showered. You know, I took a therapeutic shower this week as well. <laughs> like there was a couple of days in there where yep. I kind of didn't really have the gumption to do it. And then I took one and I have to tell you, major improvement in my, in my yeah. mood. Yeah. I put on uh, this weird local radio station and took a shower and I feel pretty squeaky. Ah, well, you know, whatever it takes to get in the zone for doing this show. Speaking of which... You ready to do this radio program? I'm pretty ready, yeah. Okay, Molly, are we recording? We are rolling. All right, great. Elena, take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. Recorded from our actual houses, welcome to the Livewire house party. This week, writer Jose Antonio Vargas, poet Dennis Smith, music from Angelica Garcia. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello. And now, the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank! Oh my goodness gracious, Elena Passarello. Thank you so much. Thanks everybody for tuning in. We have a fun show in store for all of you this week. Remember fun? 
Elena? Remember when <laughs> that was a thing and it just wasn't like complete and total anxiety and tension every second of your life? Yeah, I remember like opening my eyes and looking out the window and thinking, oh, the sun is up. Time to start my day and stretching yeah. and then just excited about what the, the day had in store for me. I think I remember that. We're bringing it back, baby. This week, we're bringing it back on the show. Fun is yeah. going to happen here on Livewire. Starting with our audience question, of course, each week on the show, we like to ask the listeners a question they send in their responses. This week, we asked, what's your best coping mechanism during stressful times? That was just a random question. Pulled out of the apropos hopper. of nothing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so uh, we're going to get the listener responses here in a little bit. First, though, Elena, I wanted to ask you, what is your best coping mechanism during stressful times? Well, for me, it's a tiered system. You know, you got your everyday okay. deep breathing. You got your stressful uh-huh. chocolate. You got your, mm-hmm. uh, you know, spa day. But when things mm-hmm. are really stressful, I like to take my advice from the Beastie Boys. When stress is in the house, what you going to do? You go AWOL! You just got to go AWOL, man. What does that look like at Chateau de Passarello? It looks terrible, but you just got to, <laughs> you got to like get into your body and make yeah. it do something stupid. You got to yeah. like, you got to just like check out and like have fun and pretend you're like a little kid who used to run everywhere and just like. Here's the thing. I have the exact opposite coping mechanism. I don't know if it's a coping mechanism or like undiagnosed depression, but when I am feeling really stressed, I get extremely sleepy. Oh. Like in the before times when we would be doing our show in front of a big crowd and Mm -hmm. I'd be sort of nervous about how it was going to go. It's like 45 minutes before the show. I could sit down and close my eyes and immediately go to sleep. Like that is the way that my body for some reason responds to uh, to being really stressed out. Sleeping is a kind of AWOL, right? You're not there. You're gone. You just, you're just yeah. leaving, right? right? You're taking your body yeah. to another place. It's definitely, I'm transporting myself somewhere, but it is the, like, I'll be in a, let's just say, heated discussion potentially with my wife. Mm-hmm. I close my eyes and it's just lights out. <laughs> like that is, my body just says, we are going to go into like a cryogenic, we're going to be like Han Solo when they find him in like Jabba's lair. He's in like carbonite. All right. Hey, let's find out what the Livewire listeners are answering that question. Elena, what are they saying? Are there coping mechanisms during stressful times? Uh, these are very helpful. Okay, good. Here's one from uh, Rebecca trashy television on a streaming service and I allow myself to look at returns only between episodes also alcohol (laughs) basically every (laughs) one of these says also alcohol (laughs) yeah I think the producers uh, were suspecting going into this week that that question this question would elicit a lot of alcohol related answers Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah the the idea of creating something that has a kind of like a fixed duration like a an episode of trashy TV mm-hmm. and during that time you can't obsessively refresh an election map mm-hmm. or something is probably kind of good uh, for, for managing stress. Mm-hmm. What else? Um, here's a really good one from Sarah. Sarah says, I had to cancel a long anticipated trip in February. Guess why? So I bought myself a hot tub with my vacation money. <laughs> that, I believe if I read the news right, that like when the pandemic started, uh, one of the uh, items that they could not keep in stock uh, at Amazon was hot tubs, like three hundred dollar 
inflatable hot tubs oh. that you can get delivered to your house because people were practicing a lot of hot tub related self care. I'm getting one if they're back in stock. I hear space heaters are are kind of flying off the shelves. Well, you have to, right? Mm-hmm. If you're going to get together, you know, like Thanksgiving might be an outdoor picnic this year. <laughs> and depending on where you live, Campsgiving. could be very, very, yeah, Campsgiving indeed. All right. Hey, let's get our first guest over here to the Livewire house party. He is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, and he knows a lot about coping during stressful times. Uh, for example, how about living every day with the knowledge that you could be deported He wrote a book about this experience. It's titled Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Um, We recorded this conversation back in 2018, but this week seemed like a a really good moment to bring it back and kind of reflect on the Mm -hmm. overall message. Um, So take a listen to this. It's Jose Antonio Vargas recorded live at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Jose, welcome to Livewire. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for and having me. It's actually uh, one of my first questions for you. I'm, I'm, we're not being cheeky. Uh, you're the first guest in my memory of hosting the show where we have actually, we had to hire extra security just to make sure everything was taken care of. I know you've gotten some threats at times. I know that there is a possibility that ICE could show up at an event you were doing. Do you have a plan in mind? Like, what, what if that were to happen? Oh, yeah. Like, I'm, like, prepared. What, what's the, I mean, what's the plan? So I have a lawyer. I memorized my lawyer's phone number. Because, you know, now we have iPhones, so we don't remember numbers anymore. <laughs> so I actually, after the election, I realized that this could happen for real. And so I had to, like, write down my lawyer's, like, phone number in my arm. <laughs> That's when I knew that we had entered a different era. Right. Um, but at the same time, I have to keep a sense of humor about this or else it's just way too tragic. Well, let's, let's start kind of at the beginning for you. How old were you when you moved to the U.S.? I was 12. My mom sent me here from the Philippines. Then, you know, it was 1993, and I actually thought my original thought was I, was, I landed in the wrong country huh. because in the Philippines where I'm from, I thought America was like Baywatch and Oprah. Huh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I thought I was in the wrong country, but I guess there's this thing in, the, you know, in America called Latinos and Asian people. I didn't know I was Asian. I always knew I was Filipino, but I didn't know what Asian was. Then four years later, when I was 16, when I tried to get a driver's license, I, that's when I found out that the green card that my grandparents had given me was fake. That's how I found out. And my instant reaction was, I'm not Mexican. Because wow. I had so internalized that whenever anybody said anything about immigration or fake or illegal, right, the news, the newspaper, the radio, the television, everybody thought it was Mexican. And I'm Filipino, but, you know, my name is Jose because of Spanish colonialism. Huh. <laughs> On any level, were you upset with your grandparents oh God, or your family for not telling upset. you this? <laughs> because I guess their plan was they get me here um, – I marry a woman who's a U.S. citizen, and meantime, until that happens, I work at the flea market as a janitor. That was the plan. But then the fact that my grandfather had lied to do this, because I guess he couldn't bring me here legally, because you can't, if you're a grandparent, you can't petition a grandchild that's not close in for a relationship. Oh, you're my, kidding. Yeah. Wow. That's why they couldn't do it legally. My mom, my grandfather lied on a form and said that my mother was single, even though she was married. So all these lies. And now they wanted me to lie. And so I said, actually, I'm gay. 
<laughs> so that was That's like, a really good way to regain well, control of the conversation. Exactly. <laughs> but you don't say that to like a Frank Sinatra loving my way or the highway Filipino Catholic immigrant guy. Wow. But it was my own way of saying, yo, like, I have to be in control of my life. Like, I'm not just going to buy into this lie. So that's why when I wrote this book, I structured it lying, passing, and hiding. Because, you know, outside of the whole immigration reform conversation or Dream Act of DACA, the reality is the emotional toll of what it means to live in this country without documents, which I've been doing for the past 25 years, is what we do is we lie, we try to pass. So you're trying to continue on with your life, I guess, uh, even though you know that at any moment you could be sort of found out. How did you, I mean, you're an ambitious guy, though. You, you were working in the media. You were interning at newspapers. You end up at the Washington Post. You go to college. How do you get into college when you are not officially documented in this country? Well, actually, that's why, even in writing this book, what I wanted to communicate is that people like me can't lie and pass and hide on our own. Right, Like there are many, many, many people who have hidden and lied for me and tried to help me out so I can pass. So like if it wasn't, for example, for my high school principal, I would not have gotten a scholarship to go to college. Because this was before there was a dream app, when there was no language around any of this. There was no Google. There, you, I mean, we couldn't find each other. And I actually owe a great deal of gratitude to, to Oregon, specifically to Portland. Because if it wasn't for getting a driver's license in Portland, in Oregon, I would not have had a career at the Washington Post. All of my mentors from high school literally conspired to help get me a driver's license. And it just so happened that my friend and mentor's father-in-law lived in Portland. So he let me use his residence, his home address, so I could drive up from Mountain View, California to Portland, Oregon, which I'd never done before, and tried to get a test. And, you know, th that license was the only piece of ID I had from 2003 until 2011 when the license. So I had eight years. Now, mind you, during that time, Oregon decided to take away our right to drive. Like, I, I, was, I was here last time in 2014 in Portland because y'all made marijuana legal, which is congratulations, amazing. <laughs> the same time you took away the rights of undocumented Oregonians to drive. What is up with that? This is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We're playing a conversation with journalist Jose Antonio Vargas. Uh, Jose's book is Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. We got to take a quick break, but please don't go anywhere because we will be right back with much more. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including... Uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive 
content. Uh, and Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Welcome back to the LiveWire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. This week, uh, with you know everything that's going on, we thought this would be a good time to feature a 2018 conversation that we had with journalist Jose Antonio Vargas uh, talking about his life as an undocumented person uh, in the U.S. So let's go back to the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, and pick things up there. You came to the U.S. when you were 12. You found out later on that you didn't have all of the paperwork to be here, but you, of course, wanted to pursue a life, as anyone would, and so you you get into college. You end up working at the Washington Post. You are part of a team that wins a Pulitzer Prize, and then in 2011, you wrote a piece declaring yourself and letting the world know that you were not documented. Why on earth did you decide to do that? Seems like a terrible idea. According to 20 lawyers, it was a terrible idea. Um, but, you know, the license was expiring. The Portland the driver's Portland, license? The Portland, Oregon driver's license was valid that for was eight your one, years. That was your one kind of legitimizing piece I of government ID. I dropped it once at a bar and a club, and I freaked the hell out. <laughs> people forget, like, I'm undocumented because I don't have the right documents. Like, how do you get around in America, in post-9-11 America, without any sort of ID? It was literally the only piece of ID I had, thanks to Oregon, and it was expiring on February 3rd, 2011, which was precisely my 30th birthday, and so it was like this telltale heart kind of clock beating inside of me, going like, okay, what are we going to do? And at that point, I was writing for The New Yorker. I just finished my first documentary, you know, whatever. I was living in New York, so the choices was I either self-deport, thanks to Mitt Romney for that phrase, and actually, my original plan was to leave because, you know, I haven't seen my mom since I was 12 or I, I stay. And again, I'm totally fine if I had to, like, be a janitor or babysit your kids or mow your lawn and serve you drinks like, you know, what people expect us to do. I would have been fine with doing that, but I ended up being a writer. And really, really the only reason I became a journalist was so I could write my way into the newspaper because it was my way of physically feeling like I was here. So I think the whole time I was just carrying a lot of guilt about that. Like, how can I be in the business of truth telling if I'm lying about who I am? Were you, were right? you carrying guilt or were you carrying um, anxiety? Oh, both. And the way to compartmentalize that is you just, you know, thankfully, I don't know how it happened. I, I could have gotten into drugs. I could have been an alcoholic. But instead, I'm just like, I'm just going to work, 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 work. And, you know, you know how people say that people like me should earn our citizenship. You mean people who, who are undocumented? Yeah. Like, you know, whenever they talk about immigration reform, they're like, hey, they should earn their citizenship. So I actually convinced myself that I had to do that, which meant that I had to get this really, you know, good resume. And then I realized, like, earn it. Like, what have you done to earn your citizenship? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm Absolutely nothing. 
Right? I mean, let's just kind of turn the tables around. Like if we were actually, you know, apparently there's like 150,000 undocumented people in the state of Oregon. If you were actually to compare what citizenship is, I would argue that undocumented people exhibit a greater amount of citizenship than you could possibly imagine. Yeah. So, but that's, a, you know, I don't want to have to go around everybody and say like, hey, have you proven your worth? What have you done? I don't want to do that. That's rude. That's totally rude. So I don't want to do that. I just want us to be able to figure out how we can share this space together and like what it means that our lives, you know, we're accountable to each other. Like, what does that mean? We're talking to Jose Antonio Vargas. Um, uh, his book is Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. Um, f from the time when this was basically a secret that you were sort of keeping, or at least yeah. not many people knew, to when you publicly declared that you were undocumented, uh, how has your life changed? Are you less anxious now? Are you more anxious? I mean, certainly the current administration is probably not helping for you. <laughs> but like, what was it, what's the difference in your life before and after you went public with this information? Well, the biggest thing is the moment I came out as undocumented, I knew that I was only one story, one story, right? And because I'm, I look like this, people are going to project onto me this good immigrant model minority. Can we stop doing that, by the way? Can we stop projecting onto Asian people this model minority thing? Like, let's just stop. So I knew that was going to happen. So I started an organization called defineamerican.com. Please check it out. I now employ 18 people, which is amazing. But just to check, this is how crazy our immigration system is. So I can employ people and provide good health benefits and insurance that I can't get myself. <laughs> what is that? So I started this organization, and then after Trump got elected president, I was living in downtown LA, and the building manager texted me and said, hey, Jose, um, I don't know what we would do if ICE showed up, if we could protect you. So when he said that, it kind of crystallized for me what my own situation was, that I can't pretend that my life has been and always been in limbo. So I packed everything up, it's all in storage, and I haven't had a place since. So I actually wrote the book while I was in like hotel rooms and Airbnbs and friends' houses because I just kind of had to face what it means to be in this kind of purgatory. What does the future look like for you? I mean, uh, do you think you'll be able to live out your days in America? Or do you think it's, it's a sort of a likelihood that you will end up getting deported at some point? I don't know. I really don't know. But I have to be prepared for everything. The book just came out. I did the Today Show. I've been just going through the, the rounds. And what's fascinating is so many of my colleagues in journalism, the number one thing they ask me after they read the book is, I just don't understand why you can't fix this thing. But before we talk about any sort of policy or politics, can we get on the same page about what we're actually talking about? Right. Right? And right. what do you think that is, in well, your that opinion? that is, for example, if I just counted all the undocumented Asian, undocumented black, undocumented white people, what do we want to do with them? And the role now is, what do each community, each county, each state really wants to do with us? So there's only 12 states that allow us to drive. And I'm sorry to say that Oregon is no longer one of them. Right? So I, I really don't know anymore what can happen in D.C., given how partisan and toxic it is. What I do know is... Every community has to decide who's welcome and how do they define American, right? So our work is into that. As a gay man, I remember the time when Ellen was on the cover of Time, when Will and Grace was the number one show on television, right? Before we actually passed same-sex marriage as a law, the culture in which we talk about gay people had to change. 
it is now thankfully culturally unacceptable to be anti-gay. In this country, you say something anti-immigrant, not only is it acceptable, you get elected to be president of the United States. What is that about, right? What's one thing, somebody's listening to this interview right now, out wherever they are in America, who might want to try to change the way that we talk about this and the way we think about it? What's one thing somebody can do? It has to start with you. Meaning, how willing are you to be uncomfortable talking to your own relatives about this? Are you gonna call your coworker out who says something bad about illegals, right? Like, at Define American, we strongly believe in the gift of uncomfortable conversations. That's mostly what this show is. Great. <laughs> but for me, if you're not uncomfortable talking about this with someone else, then you're actually not doing it right. right. So get comfortable with the discomfort of having real conversations about that need to happen. About what this is, right? And that's why I think this book is going to really help, because it's a clear, deliberate, 200-page play-by-play of what it actually means to be this kind of abstract term. I think yeah. in the minds of a lot of people that live in this country, it's this kind of blank placeholder word, like immigration reform or illegal. But now here's a story with a beginning and a middle, and I hope uh, the kind of end that we all want for you, that... I think can, can make that change with a relative or a community or a community member or a school if they could take a look at the book. Oh, thank you. That's yeah. the hope. But you know, look, <laughs> I love this country. If I didn't, I would have already left. I love all the teachers that ever welcome me here. I love, I love that I'm from Mountain View, California. I love that you know, this is a country that always tries to figure out how to better itself. Um, and I think we have to remind people that it is actually a choice for us to stay. Right? We choose to stay. The question is, what's your choice? What are you going to do? Jose Antonio Vargas, everyone. The book is Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. That was Jose Antonio Vargas from back in 2018, right here on Livewire. Elena, of the interviews that we've done in the last couple of years, I think that one may have gotten more feedback from people. Is that right? Than just about anything else. Yeah, it really resonated with folks. I think hearing somebody, you know, who's been living their life in this country undocumented and, and really what the day-to-day -day realities of that are is just really eye-opening for a lot of folks. Uh, and again, you know, feels like a good a good perspective to uh, hear from yeah. on this week of all weeks. By the way, uh, Jose's book is Dear America, Notes of an Undocumented Citizen. And here's an update. Uh, Jose is doing well, thankfully. And he just co-produced the play What the Constitution Means to Me, <gasps> oh. uh, which came out on Amazon a few weeks ago. That is a wonderful piece. I'm teaching it next term. I watched it on Amazon and immediately decided to assign it to my students. That was co-produced by Jose. Oh, well done, Jose. Who knew? Wow. All right, so everybody go check that out on Amazon. This is the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, each week on the show, we ask the Livewire listeners a question. Uh, we asked, what is your best coping mechanism during stressful times? Um, and uh, folks sent in their answers online. Elena, you have been collecting those up. What are uh, people saying they're doing? Uh, we have a lot of responses from Sarah's this week. And here's another okay. one from Sarah. <laughs> her, her mechanism is cooking, reading, crying in the shower, 
all get equal time. <laughs> uh, yeah, I th- this week I I have to say like I was very into comfort food. Oh, what'd you eat? Particularly on election night, I had a whole plan. We made vegetarian chili. Mm. It was like I I sort of wanted to wrap myself in. I wore sweats and like a sweatshirt all day. Wow. I was in intense comfort mode because I was like, if the news of the world is something that feels uncomfortable to me. I need to swaddle myself in as much comfort from a food perspective and a sweats perspective as possible. We did as many chores as possible. We swept out the garage. We took all the cans to the recycling center. I was just like busy, 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 just trying to wear myself out. Um, what, what's another uh, way that a listener is coping during stressful times? Oh, this one from Wyatt, I'm going to steal. Sometimes Wyatt says, I just sit in front of a mirror with a sock puppet and my mask on, pretending I really <laughs> missed my calling as a ventriloquist. <laughs> That's going AWOL, Wyatt. That's right. <laughs> Why not? And I, you would be a really good uh, ventriloquist if your lips were concealed. So it's also practical. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Do you know what ventriloquist means? No. Stomach speaker. We just justified this entire episode of the show. Isn't that great? <laughs> All right, one one more, Elena, before we get our next guest out here. Here's one from Stephanie. Stephanie's coping mechanism, watching Hamilton on repeat. <laughs> I guess this is the Disney filmed version of the hit musical Hamilton. Uh-huh. Although, you know, I mean, that's also about a sort of a contested political situation. It's true. <laughs> so it's like, but there's like more rapping. Yeah. So and like, just kind of. Yeah. Maybe if we, there was more rapping in our current situation, we'd be yeah. calmer. <laughs> this is Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank, joined as always by Elena Passarello. This week, we are featuring conversations about how we can go forward as a country after this very intense week. And when we decided that that was the kind of show that we wanted to do this week, we immediately thought of the poet Denez Smith, um, who gives a voice to a number of really important but but often overlooked groups of people in this country. Uh, they've been a finalist for a National Book Award. Their latest book of poetry, Homie, is out now. Um, let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Denez Smith. We recorded this back in February of this year at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Hey there, Denez. Welcome back. Hey, how are you? We are so good, and we're so happy that you're here. Um, I think the name Homie is a great name for a book of poems, and then I start reading the book, and I learn that's not even the name for the book that you really wanted. No. Um, There's two titles. There's one for black people and one for the rest of y'all, So, um, which is most of the city of Portland. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) No, there's um, the actual title of the book. Um, is my nig. Don't say it back to me. Um, and that, <laughs> the reason for that, um, you know, I think if I really wanted to, I could have a book uh, with the N-word in the title, but I didn't want to recreate um, the sort of reckless, loose violence that I think a lot of rappers do with that word mm-hmm. by just like letting their fan bases just like holler it across the land. And I have definitely punched somebody at a Kendrick Lamar concert before um, for that same reason. But, um, you know, it was a way to say that, hey, you know, this book has different levels of intimacy, um, that there are different ways in which each of us can walk into this piece of art. And so it's just saying, like, you 
know, welcome to me thinking about friendship in this very particular way. Don't touch anything that, and take your shoes off, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that it has a second title page. Yeah. So you see the title page that says homie, mm-hmm. and then you have the explanation for the actual title, and then it's like it, a whole new... Starting over, did, did the press give you any, any guff about that, or were no, they excited they, about it? they love me. I yeah. am a... <laughs> they lo- I make them money. I, <laughs> they like it. And plus, you know, who doesn't like a reveal, right? It's sort oh, yeah. of like my own... Since I'll never be on RuPaul's Drag Race, why not have a book with two titles, That's, right? Yeah. It's like when, when you walk in in the opening to the workroom, and then you take off one outfit and have another outfit exactly. on Exactly. So this is my wig under my wig under my wig. Beautiful. Uh, beautiful. Also beautiful. a good name for a book. Yeah. Yeah. Wig under a wig. Under a wig. Yeah. Um, okay, but then right when we get past the second title to the book, uh, there is a lyric from Lil Wayne. Uh-huh. And I'm, you, you mentioned hip-hop already. I'm curious, as a queer person, how do you reconcile like a love of hip-hop with a lot of the stuff that goes on in hip-hop lyrically with misogyny and homophobia? You know, any form of music that's done by a man at some point is gonna end up sexist or homophobic or classist or all the things. Um, not just hip hop, right? Rock does it too. They're very good at sure. it. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. um, so does country. Uh, and so, you know, like I do like most people, I, I cringe and I critique, uh, but I also enjoy it. I love hip hop. It's a music that raised me. Um, it's a music that has made sense to uh, my people and my family. Um, and so like anything I love, right? I love my grandma, but I have notes. Uh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, hip, I have notes for hip-hop, right? There are things I would love to be different, but, um, but yeah, it, it is one of the genres that I consider mine. So, yeah. Um, can you uh, read something from Homie? Surely can. Okay. All right. um, so this poem is called uh, My President, not that orange one. Um, so, yeah, when you realize America is a sham, you start pledging allegiance to other things. Here's a poem about that type. All right, my president. Today, I elect Jonathan, 11 and already making roads out of water. Young genius, blog writer, little community activist, curls tight as pinky swears, black as my nation. I trust the world in his tender, blooming hands. I trust him to tell us which rivers are safe to drink and which hold fish like a promise. And I elect Eve Ewing, who I know would misfrizzle the country into one big classroom where grandmas finger paint the national budget and uncles stand around smoking blacks, plotting on stars for our escape. She could walk to the podium at her inauguration and say the future is now. And we would all marvel as the sun and moon started looping the sky like a jiff. It's pronounced jiff as the cars all learned to fly and our skin grew bulletproof. And Colin Kaepernick is my president, who kneels on the air, bent toward a branch, throwing apples down to the children and vets. And Rihanna is my president, walking out of global summits with a wine glass still in hand, our taxes returned in gold to dust our faces into coins. And my mama is my president, her grace stunts on amazing brown hands, you're really hype, brown hands, breaking brown bread over the mouth of the hungry until there are none unfed. And my grandma is my president, and her cabinet is her cabinet. Cause she, 
Cause she knows to trust what the grandma getting a lot of shout outs today. Cause she knows to trust what the pan knows, how the skillet wins the war and the man. I saw high kicking his way down the river. He is my president. And the trans girl making songs in her closet, spinning the dark into a booming dress. She too is my president. And Shonda Rhimes is my president. And Nate Marshall is my president. And Trina is my president. And the boys outside Walgreens selling candy for a possibly fictional basketball team. They, they are my presidents. And the bus driver who stops after you yell, wait, only twice is my prez. And dude at the pizza spot who will give you a free slice if you are down to wait for him to finish the day's fourth prayer is my president and my auntie. Only a few months clean, but clean. She is my president and my neighbor who holds the door open when my arms are full of laundry is my president and every head nod is my president and every child singing summer with a red sweet tongue is my president and the birds and the cooks and the single moms especially and the weed dealers and the teachers and the meter maids who let you slide and the cab drivers who stop and the nurses swollen feet and the braiders exhausted hands and the bartender and Beyonce and all her kids and the rabbi and the sad girls and the leather daddy who always stops to say good morning and the boy crying on the train and the sudden abuela who rubs his back and the uncle who offers him water and the drag queen who begins to hum oh my presidents my presidents my presidents my presidents show me to our nation my only border is my body i sing your names sing your names your names, my mighty anthem. Denez Smith reading from their book, Homie. That might be I think that might be the first standing ovation for a poem we've had on. I mean, I know I've never, ever, ever. I don't think I've ever gotten a standing ovation for anything. That's that's incredible. What is your relationship with a poem like that from when you write it to when it makes it into the book to when you're reading it to people? Like, does it become like a song that you know the lyrics to really well, is it a, a constantly evolving organism for you? Oh, I think every time you read a poem out loud, it is as much um, about all the time you put into it, like the days before, you know, writing it and rewriting it and practicing it, and also about like all the energy in the room, right? So, um, like all of us here tonight, like you yeah, make that poem happen. That sounds really corny, um, but I do think that, you know, I don't perform that poem the same if the audience has no energy in them. Um, then we're both struggling through it. And so, yeah. Um, and so I think that is like the beautiful part about poetry is that it's always this moment um, of intense intimacy, like waiting to happen, right? That poem is like super fun and private for me, but it really only does a certain thing for me and it moves a different way once I get to bring it out into the world and have it with other people. And hopefully like, you know, people who read the book can have their own little private Idaho with the poem too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I didn't know where to go. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's next door. Yeah. So, yeah. a good answer, yeah. a good ending to that statement. Sure. Yeah. <laughs>
This is Live Wire Radio. We're talking to Denez Smith. Their new book is Homie. Uh, your previous book, Don't Call Us Dead, it really made a splash, and it got a lot of awards, and, and it got a lot of uh, discussion around it. Then you're working on your next book. Does that make it easier or more difficult to put out your second book when the first book went really well? Uh, harder for me. Um, I'm a Leo, um, if that means anything to you. And no Leo should be told that they did a good job. Because uh, <laughs> we will believe it. Um, but also, um, it, makes a, it makes it incredibly hard to do anything else. And so I had like a long period of writer's block while writing Homie where I couldn't do anything because Don't Call Us Dead had um, done the thing that I guess I had hoped a book would do at some point in my career. And it was happening when I was 27, 28. Um, and so, yeah, I panicked and I couldn't write a poem without it needing to achieve some other task that isn't what a poem should care about. I was trying to make it back onto these awards lists. I was trying to sell these books again. And a poem doesn't need to be concerned with anything besides, like, capturing one tiny bit of what it meant to be human. And I was letting all these egotistical things get, into the, get in the way of just letting a poem think or be or move me from one place to another. And so it took a couple of months to really remind myself that I wasn't writing poems for the National Book Award Committee, that I was doing it because it saved my life. It helps me make sense of the world because poems are real urgent things and not just like, yeah, some stepping stone for some meager career. And I think that is what I had to remind myself that I didn't care about any of this other stuff when I started writing poems, they moved me. And so if I can inspire that in folks, if I could get back to this place of like, what is the, I don't know, I want, I want to say like the, the, the bigger than me goal mm -hmm. for this book of poetry, right? Like what is going to live beyond myself? It is this little artifact of love mm -hmm. that I made, I hope. And so I had to, yeah, I had to think about that. Yeah. Who, who am I? But I think that's going to die. Let the poems be something better. Yeah. Well, why do you think, I mean, it's not like uh, writers of, of other prose are necessarily raking it in. I mean, writing overall is, I think my sense is it's something people do because they love it. Mm -hmm. But why don't we value poetry more when it's something that clearly moves people? You got a reaction from this crowd that's probably unlike anything I can remember in years. Well, I think it, one, I do think it's changing, right? Okay. I think if you like look at the numbers, um, then more people are reading poetry than they have in the last couple of decades. So people are returning to poetry again. But um, I think it's because of how we've, remembered poetry as a society, right? Like, I don't know about y'all, but like, I didn't realize that poets were still living until like, <laughs> seriously, until like 10th grade and not in English class because it was always like Robert Frost or Emily Dickinson, Lexington Hughes if it was February. And, and that was it. And so it wasn't until my theater teacher actually like brought in some like living, breathing poets. So I was like, oh crap, people still write that stuff? Um, and so I think it's, I think because people have this fraught, dead relationship with poetry where they think it's a thing of the past, that it's something we look back upon to think about where we are now. But there are poets writing about today. There are poets that are using the languages that we exist in today. And that's so powerful. And I think people, there's every day there's somebody having an aha moment that, oh, wow, poetry is still here and it's still vibrant and it still speaks to me. Um, I think there are a lot of teachers, um, shout out to everybody under the hashtag Teach Living Poets uh, um, on Twitter. Uh, so I think there is like a slow movement of folks trying to really um, make poetry not only alive again in our hearts, but like to be like, hey, there's actually a lot of really brilliant contemporary poets uh, writing right now. Um, there's a huge treasure trove and I'm excited for everybody else to figure out um, that, that there is this great abundance in poetry right now that was Denez Smith 
Joining us live at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, back in February of this year, back when that was the kind of thing that we could do. In addition to writing poetry, Denez is also the co-host of the Verses podcast from the Poetry Foundation, um, which is another thing this week. If you're looking to just sort of relax, uh, go AWOL by listening to a Poetry Foundation <laughs> podcast, <laughs> Passarello style. All right, we got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be back with much more Livewire in just a moment. Special thanks this episode to Mark Serwinski of Tillamook, Oregon, and Curtis Clark of Portland, Oregon. Mark and Curtis are part of the Livewire member community, and they generously support us with a donation each month, and we are ever so thankful for that because it is genuinely what allows us to keep the show going. So a big thanks this week to Mark and Curtis. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. And they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream Earl Grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to the Livewire House Party from PRX. I'm your host, Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello. Hope you're all doing okay, wherever you are, wherever you might be hearing us this week. Uh, it's been a, a weird, stressful week for everyone, but this is something that we think might take the edge off. Uh, a little bit of music from our musical guest this week, Angelica Garcia. Um, she put out a song a while ago called Hickama that was featured on one of Barack Obama's legendary year-end playlists. I know. Can you even imagine? No. If like if he ever puts a radio show playlist out and we're on it. Yes. We'll be at the top. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like your positivity, Passarello. Uh, Angelica stopped by the Alberta Rose Theater back in March uh, for what uh, we didn't know at the time would turn out to be our final live show in front of an audience uh, for a while. So, of course, here we are still at our houses. Looking forward to when we can all gather in person again. In the meantime, take a listen to this. It's Angelica Garcia, recorded at the Alberta Rose Theater. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
and enough from the people that tell you you need that to be something. Yeah, yeah. I want the cooking that my grandmother made. Yeah, I want the bed that I was yelled at to make. Yeah, I want sweat dripping off my face, dripping off my. That was Angelica Garcia. We recorded that back in March at the Alberta Rose Theater. Uh, her latest album is Cha Cha Palace. Uh, this is Live Wire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. Before we get out of here, a little uh, preview of next week's show. 
We are going to be talking to friend of the program, Lindy West, about her new book of film criticism. We're also going to be talking to Kirsten Johnson, who is a director and has made this really incredible documentary on Netflix called Dick Johnson is Dead Mm -hmm. about her father. Uh, Really amazing piece of filmmaking. Uh, Also, we, of course, will be getting your answers to our listener question, which is where our social media manager, Ariana Donneville, comes in. Hey, Ariana. Hey, Luke. I understand that amidst all the stress we're all dealing with, you have some very personalized stress, which is that your dog is getting a haircut. <laughs> yes, he's getting a haircut. <laughs> and this, like, this is a very like parent-child relationship for you. Like, you're nervous for the dog haircut. Yes, I'm a little, I'm a little nervous about it, but I know he's going to look great. <laughs> okay, we got. Can we get a picture of Kenzo on the Livewire social media feed? Yes, I will have to put one up. And for the listeners, I have a long-haired Yorkie. So he's going to be a shorter-haired Yorkie. (laughs) (laughs) Come next week. (laughs) All right. Um, So uh, what is the question for the listeners this coming week? What movie have you seen the most times and why? Man, I'm trying to think of my answer to that question. That's great because there's the honest answer and then there's the answer Mm. that you're going to say. You know, like there's the thing that comes on cable (laughs) that you never say no to. And then there's the conscious choice to watch Casablanca for the fifth time, you know, or whatever. Casablanca might actually be my top one. And that's not to be pretentious. That's just because I'm a big softy. There's also those those movies that, like you said, Elena, when you're flipping the channels, you just and you hit that movie, you just don't change it. Shawshank, wherever it's at in the movie. Yeah. Um, so, Ariana, what's the best way for folks to uh, let us know the movie that they've watched the most? Yeah, listeners can submit those answers through our social media channels. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Livewire Radio, and we're also on Facebook. All right. Thank you so much, Ariana. Good luck with this very important moment for your family with the dog haircut. We'll get a full report coming up next. All right. That is going to do it for our show this week. Uh, A huge thanks to our guests, Jose Antonio Vargas, Denez Smith, and Angelica Garcia. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. And Ariana Donneville is our marketing associate. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom and A. Walker Spring, who also composed our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director, and she mixed this episode. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we would like to thank member Kim Williamson of Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole Livewire crew. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered right to your heart and ears each week? 
Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.